Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Gotten to the point now where I have to start this podcast talking about now the immortal Danny Moses. Record stands at 24 and 3, which is mind boggling on a number of different levels. So, Danny, I know you have some picks for us on the final week of the league where they play for pay, and we're going to get to those. But, Dan Nathan, as you sit here now, what are your thoughts just around what's transpired over the last few months? Listen, I got to give our listener a little background here. So in the last week of August, we had Indonikin Sue on the podcast. Indonikin is a defensive end for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And he's a friend of our really good friend, Joe Marchese. And he's an investor in both public and private markets. And he has this amazing investment in just financial literacy. And it was just this amazing conversation. So then the next week, it's week one in the NFL, and Danny, his very first pick, and you and I, Guy, have no reason to believe whether he's any good at doing this, and his first pick is against, he takes whoever was playing the Super Bowl champ. Dallas. I took Dallas. Yes. And I just like, ah, I'll take the other side of that. So maybe for like 500 or something like that, I get steamrolled. And then the next week, he comes back. I honestly think I got set up here because we had no reason to believe that he could go up. And so I take the other side. All right, now I'm down a grand. And then I'm like, all right, I'm reaching here. And he's on this amazing streak. And so here I am. I'm down eight grand. What do you want from me? I don't know. Well, just to be fair, now you're down eight. All our viewers think is that you were down seven at this point because, again, you call me on Sundays at 1259 and 414. I'm chasing. Yeah, you chase, and that's fine. And some I like, some I don't. So you have come at me with various picks, and I have taken the other side. So Yeah, but I feel like I got hustled here, guy. I Honestly, I feel like I'm some little old lady. You feel like Robert Shaw in The Sting. You think that Danny Moses is Paul Newman. You think I'm Robert Redford. You're Robert Shaw. You're going to be let out. I'm Robert Shaw. You're Redford, and you're Newman, and I'm Robert Shaw. What the hell is going on here? Didn't he get eaten by a shark and something else also? Yeah, it was called Jaws. In case you're wondering, if you don't know, if you stumbled upon us, you are, in fact, listening to On the Tape. I am Guy Adami, joined, as always, by the 89% accurate Danny Moses, the forlorn Dan Nathan. Later on, we're going to have the great Tom Lee join us. I'm sure he has some thoughts on the market. Clearly, another great prognosticator. So maybe we'll call this episode The Prognosticators, but I digress a bit. I want to start off by talking about the market's fascinating to me. And again, a Federal Reserve that turned hawkish a couple weeks ago, well, this week they went full hawk, in my opinion. They went a Dominique Wilkins, if you will, on the market. And it's manifesting itself, Danny Moses, not only in 10-year yields now, testing levels we last saw in March, but in two-year yields having gone from 20 basis points in September to either side of 85 basis points, a historic move by any standard. Do you know who coined the phrase, Dominique is magnifique? Do you know who that broadcaster was for the Atlanta Hawks? Mike Fratello? No, that's pretty good. No, I'll tell you exactly what it is. John Sterling. Yes, yes. That I'm messing with you. He says it all the time during his Yankee. John Sterling, we should get him on the podcast because he is an American legend. Well, Susan, I don't know, Susan. Yeah, we'll get him on. But anyway, that was him. So yes, fascinating week. And here's the crazy thing. We talk about these CME Fed Fund futures. We've been talking about it every week, I want to say, for the last three months. The market was already pricing in a 65% chance of a Fed rate hike in March before those Fed minutes were released. Those Fed minutes are three weeks ago, four weeks ago already at this point. So it didn't really tell us anything new. People fixated on this balance sheet reduction, effectively letting the balance sheet run off. So the balance sheet's approaching $9 trillion for the Fed, mostly full of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And as everyone knows, they went from $4 trillion basically to nine since the pandemic started. And at some point, they need to unwind this. So the belief is that another way to take liquidity out of the market and to stem the tide of inflation is to basically let these assets run off as they mature and not to reinvest them. They were talking about this. Bullard was talking about it, among other Fed governors, back in November and December. And so that shouldn't be a surprise either. And I'll say this on this spot, that will never happen this year. And why won't that happen this year? Because rates can't afford to go higher because we have $30 trillion in debt on the national level. It's not 
going to happen. So whether the stock market that forces the Fed hand to kind of slow things down, listen, I could go on and on and I'm feeding right into what you guys want to talk about, but inflation wasn't transitory. And at the same time, I think they're probably overestimating the impact of what inflation is going to do. So they're going to overshoot here. And I'll say one last thing. We're setting up for an incredible January 11th next week. That's the Senate Banking Committee that needs to approve the nomination of Powell on the 11th. That's going to turn into this, what are you doing thing, in my opinion. And now you have anything to do with getting his job back at the Fed. Danny, you mentioned that's definitely going to overshoot here. And when you think about the last time that it was pretty evident, at least as far as the stock market was concerned, that they overshot was in 2018. We've referenced that period a lot. We saw the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield get above three. The Fed funds rate, what, got to nearly two and a half or something like that. Rates started going down precipitously in 2019 when they changed their tune because they're worried about the stock market. The thing that's interesting about the stock market right now is that the S&P 500 was making new highs on Tuesday. We're recording this Thursday afternoon. The S&P is down less than 2% from that all-time high. The Nasdaq's down a few percent from its all-time high. So the broad indices don't give a crap. I mean, they just don't care right now. And that's the scary thing that we're only four trading days into the new year. And we just had a tectonic event with those Fed minutes. If you think about at least the reaction to the markets for about a few hours or so. So to me, it's really a hard one. We talk about the Fed floating trial balloons all the time, and once this kind of information gets out there, it should have less of an impact on markets, at least on equity markets, but who knows? Here we are, we're still flirting with all-time highs, and we do have at least a Fed that's saying right now that things are going to be very different than they have been over the last few years as far as monetary policy is concerned. I have a question for you, Danny. What is a balance sheet reduction look like? Does that mean it just rolls off over time or could they actually sell things in either scenario? What do you think that means? Because by the way, we talk about the Fed doing 180s. Well, this came out of nowhere because last time we talked about the Fed's balance sheet, we said, although they're reducing their asset purchases, by this time next year, we're going to have a Fed balance sheet approaching $10 trillion. So again, this is seemingly out of left field. So if you just didn't do anything and didn't buy any assets, so post-taper, let's end the taper in March, you're looking at roughly $9 trillion. It would take three years to run off $2.5 trillion based on the maturity of the treasuries and the mortgage-backed securities, which are currently sitting on the Fed's balance sheet. So yes, are they not reinvesting it? Yes, that's $2.5 trillion of liquidity, effectively not participating in the market and coming out. So it is a big number, but it's over a prolonged period of time. And I think it's just people reconciling and starting to now figure out they're going to have to trade in a market and survive in a market where the Fed doesn't have your back. And so the only Fed put that exists to me right now is the stock market going down 10 to 15 percent and making them pause and think about the impact of the wealth effect that could have. And that's your Fed put right now. Fed is going to complete the tapering. We're recording this before the jobs number comes out tomorrow morning. Obviously, we saw the ADP number that it was strong. Even if the jobs number is disappointing, it's not going to stop, I think, what's in motion. And like I said, we have the hearings for Brainerd and Powell next week. We're going to get a lot more information there. And I fully expect at that moment that he'll probably pull it back a little bit and maybe say things like Omicron maybe is slowing things down more than I thought. So my call right here, I think we're actually due to kind of settle in a little bit. Just to quote another Adam McKay movie, The Talladega Nights, this two year going up, I feel it in my plums. You can feel this. I mean, we're at 88 basis points. Like I said, the two-year yield to me is much more significant than the 10-year. And I think we're at roughly 85 basis points in the 210. We're kind of hanging around the 80 to 90 level, whatever. But the two-year is what I'm watching here. Well, I'm all hyped up on Mountain Dew on the back of that. And I'm with you on this one. But David Tepper, who's the owner of the Carolina Panthers, as I'm sure a lot of people know, but he also comes on CNBC from time to time. And he frustrates the shit out of me, not because he's not smart. He's brilliant but because he makes this really simple. And quite frankly, he's right to make it simple. He's come on for years and say, look, as long as the Fed's in the game, you don't fight the Fed. Obviously, a lot of other people say that as well. I get it. But that is a mantra. When the Fed is easing, when they're adding liquidity, don't fight the Fed. And that's typically things are going higher. Why would you fight it? Well, if that mantra is true when they're adding liquidity, wouldn't it be equally true not to fight the Fed when they're taking it away? In other words, if your thesis is bullish now based on the Federal Reserve, you're effectively fighting the Fed that you weren't supposed to fight when they were adding liquidity, Dan Nathan. 
Yeah. So our recent history, though, in dealing with that guy is like, think about when we started to see tapering back in 2014, and then the Fed started to raise interest rates in 2015. This is after, at that point, unprecedented quantitative easing or easy monetary policy. We had some fits and starts. Late 15, I think it was primarily a growth scare. Early 2016, also a little bit of a hiccup there in the markets. And I think the biggest peak to trough decline we had during that whole period really probably was maybe 20%. And that came in late 2018 when we had the Fed doing what you're talking about. So I guess the point is it's still bottom left, upper right guy. And this is right into the pandemic. If you think about when the Fed started to contemplate that taper tantrum that happened in 2014, the S&P 5000 was around 2000. You know where it was when they started to get more dovish in 2000? At the highs, it was at 3000. So it already appreciated 50% throughout all of the taper, throughout all of coming off ZERP. Danny Moses, we had a conversation on CNBC's Fast Money. I know you always smile when I bring that up, but we do appear on that show nightly. And it was earlier this week. And Melissa Lee said something that came back to it. She said effectively that if the market were to go down 15 or so percent, it would probably have the Fed rethinking this dialogue or these comments that they put out. And I said, you know what? I understand you and you're probably right, but that's exactly the problem, Danny. They should not care what the market does. It shouldn't be about the market. It should be about everything but the stock market. But as we've said a hundred times, they've become slave to the market. Will that ever change? Not while Powell is trying to get nominated and get appointed again. Obviously, I think that's next week if you want to be that short-sighted. I did not see that episode. And I had just said the same thing a couple minutes ago, and I agree with her completely. That just is what it is. And there are a lot of people in retail that are involved in the market right now, more than I think there have been in a long time. Maybe not as a percentage, but on the total number, there are. And so they're getting hit here with this. And the irony here is people that haven't been involved in the market, that haven't experienced the upside, are about to experience the downside of potential what rising rates means. It's going to be higher credit card rates, higher mortgage rates. And these are people, middle America, that doesn't get participate, but now we're going to feel the effects of all of this. And maybe you could say the flip side of that is they got the benefit of low rates for a long time. That's fine, but I think it's going to hurt people on the other side for sure. I know you have some thoughts on bank earnings next week, Danny. I want to hear them. But Dan, I want to ask you this question because this week the ARK ETF made a 52-week low, traded down to, I think, either side of 85, let's just say. And that's coming off of levels that was probably twice that four, five, six months ago. I mentioned it for a couple of different reasons. First of all, Michael Burry of the big short fame, typically he's early, but in the case of the ARK ETF, his timing could not have been better when he was starting to talk about it as a short idea, number one. But it speaks to, and Dan, you bring this up all the time, these high valuation, high growth names that just don't make sense, and some of the bloodletting in some of these names. For example, a name like Adobe, which again, a wonderful company. This was a $700 stock a month ago, now trading either side of $500 a month and a half or so later. This is not a small company, Dan. This is a quarter of a trillion dollar company. And you see how quickly the air gets out of the balloon. That stock is down basically 25% from its recent all-time highs just a couple months ago. And the stock is still, okay, so it's down 25%. The stock is trading at 37 times earnings and nearly 14 times sales for a company that's a quarter, a trillion dollar market cap. Okay, they're supposed to grow earnings maybe 12% this year, maybe double-digit sales growth also. This is the thing, though. This is not on the company. So they're going to have 14% revenue growth, and they have margins. 90%, which is phenomenal. That's great. But what are you willing to pay for that? That's the point. And so right here, it's not like the companies were guiding up to ridiculous levels or anything. If anything, companies have been fairly cautious with their guidance. This was about investors looking for growth anywhere they could. And this goes back to what Danny's talking about. So now if you're contemplating a rate environment that's a little bit higher or just a little bit higher and less liquidity overall, they've just all been re-rated. We're talking about major names like that, but make no mistake about it. There are parts of the tech market that have absolutely crashed, like real big components of the NASDAQ. And, you know, we've been talking about these five or six names that make up nearly half the percent of the NASDAQ 100. Well, one thing is really interesting to me. When the S&P was making new highs earlier this week, the NASDAQ had not made a new high. It had not confirmed a high in the S&P 500 since late November, since the Omicron thing came about. And that, to me, tells you that now the breadth on the other side of this thing has gotten really bad. There's just so many stocks acting horribly. Guy, 
I caught you knocking at my cellar door. I love you, baby. Can I have some more? Ooh, baby, the damage done. Neil Young, the needle and the damage done. There is a ton of damage being done in this market right now. And I know who the beneficiaries are. It's Virtu and not doing anything that's not legal in Citadel. Look at Virtu stock. Looks pretty good on the chart, doesn't it? Right? It's had a nice week. So to Dan's point, there are multi-billion dollar market cap companies, 10, 20, 30, even 100 that trade that are gap down, gap up, gap down. And for people out there, get your limits in both on the buy side and on the sell side. These swings are massive. It's being exacerbated, I think, by the liquidity in the market. Market makers are doing very well, but they're probably the only ones here and people are going to start to chase. So as we move into earnings season, have your buy points, have your sell points on some of these names, both for bounces and for stocks that come in. By the way, if you've never heard Powderfinger live with Neil Young and Crazy Horse, you have to run. Don't walk to hear it because it's one of the great live songs of all time. By the way, Russ Never Sleeps, tremendous album. I'm a huge Neil Young fan. As a matter of fact, Dan Nathan, I would see Neil Young every day of the week before some of your bands like Metallica Head and Radio Slave and all those things that you race to seemingly on a weekly basis. Yeah, you forget, though, Guy, that Neil Young had this amazing collab in the mid-90s with Pearl Jam. Remember Rockin' in the Free World? I mean, he loves Pearl Jam. Just to be really clear, okay? Danny, we back me up right here? 100% loves him. So you're the odd man out here, buddy. You're the one who can't actually span your music across multiple decades, but whatever. Neil and Eddie are like this. They're like me and Danny as it relates to music, okay? Fair enough. Listen, I love collaborations and collabs, as you say. And not to make an awkward segue, but there's some collaborations out there in the fintech bank world that maybe make sense, maybe don't make sense. But I bring that up because next week we have bank earnings. And everybody, I think, is all geeked up. Rates are going higher. The yield curve maybe has stopped flattening. Banks should be killing it right now. But Danny Moses, I think you have a different take. And I think it's around consumer credit because maybe things are not as rosy as everybody seems to think they are. Yeah, there's been a tailwind, obviously, for several years. Just the amount of reserves that the banks had built up in anticipation of credit defaults did not occur. And that was because of stimulus checks and all the money the government pumped into the system. I'm not saying that credit is deteriorating rapidly, but it has certainly peaked. And so all those what they call reserve releases are pretty much gone. And some of these banks, I'm sure, haven't appropriated money into the reserves yet. And I think they may doing that. So that tailwind is gone. Couple the fact that if you do get a choppy market like this, it will have an impact on the IPO calendar, as we say, and things like that, and banking and M&A and so forth. So it's kind of a witch's brew, as you like to call it, but we'll see. So I don't think the banks are going to give us anything that's inconsistent with what we've seen the last few quarters, because it is fourth quarter, does look back. But I think you're going to see some outlooks that are a little bit cautious. I'm more interested in Jamie Dimon's take, because he always kind of gives you a clear picture, and that's what I'm going to be watching next week for sure. Yeah, and I guess here we are. We're going to be less than two weeks in the new year. We've had some volatility, and we know that bank earnings are coming really quickly, and we won't have the mega cap tech names and maybe some of the big industrial names or consumer names until later in the month or early in February. So they really do have the opportunity to set the tone. I just say this, what's interesting about these banks, and Guy, I want to get your take on this too. When you see the sort of price action that we've seen in some of these money centers in just this week alone, where they literally have gone up 10% in a straight line, playing a bit catch up. Last week at this time, we might have said, oh, the bank's underperformance, not confirming any of the new highs in the S&P is kind of troubling. But now I don't feel more bullish that the stocks have gone up like that in a straight line. If anything, it sets up pretty badly, especially if you get just a hint of a lack of visibility in Q1 into Q2, then you see them coming back. And the last thing I'll just say is the XLF, which is the ETF that tracks the bank stocks. The problem with that vehicle, it has not made a new high. It is right at technical resistance. And that is despite the fact that the largest component in the XLF, which is Berkshire Hathaway, at about 12%, has gone on an absolute rampage over the last few weeks. It's gone from like 275 to 310 or so. So massively really drawing up the XLF. So there's some underperformance in there that I think is notable relative to what should be going on right now. I think it was Sir Thomas Wyatt that wrote, they flee from me those that did me seek. And you're saying to yourself, all right, well, why are you quoting that? Well, because I want to sound smart because this is a podcast. But number two, I think to answer your question and sort of figure out what's going on there, 
I think people that are fleeing these high growth, high valuation names in droves, by the way, are finding their way into banks thinking that maybe they can be a safety play in terms of valuation and they're not going to get fricasseed there. Well, we're going to find out in a hurry if that's in fact the case. Yeah, there's one other thing. I think people just generally feel that when rates move higher, it's a positive for banks, right? And it is true to a degree, but there are banks in there that are more liability sensitive than asset sensitive. It's not that clear cut. And they give you that on the earnings report. They'll tell you rates go to a certain level. We think this is the impact to our net interest margin. You can plug and play this stuff, but people should look. And if you want to own banks because rates are moving higher, own the right ones. And I'm not going to tell you what the right ones are, but use this quarterly report to kind of look through that and sift through that. And don't just buy the XLF. Buy a bank you like. We're 21 minutes into this, and we haven't mentioned crypto yet. And we should because Bitcoin was 68000 I think, in the beginning of Halloween, let's just say, because I like the holidays. And as we sit here... We had Bitcoin flirting with 40,000 on the downside. I mean, you can do that math. That's a significant peak to trough decline. We've seen them before. People will say this is a characteristic, not a floor of the asset. I totally get it. I'm on board with that. But here's my question to you, Dan Nathan. Could it be that for the first time now in really the maturity phase of Bitcoin, we're seeing a Federal Reserve that's actually trying to be responsible? One of the foundations of the crypto story was central banks out of control. Well, if central banks are now trying to get themselves in control, is that a potential death knell for crypto, Bitcoin specifically? You know, it's funny. There's a guy on Twitter that he's a big Tesla bull. His name is Gary Black. He's at Gary Black 00. And he had this tweet this morning that I thought was kind of interesting. He said, for those who haven't figured it out, Bitcoin acts far more like an ultra long duration equity than a hedge against inflation, a role Gold has traditionally filled, and as inflation surges, Bitcoin gets crushed. Gold, on the other hand, continues to do well as an inflation hedge. Well, I don't think gold has particularly done well, especially when you think that we have highest inflation expectations in, what, 30 or 40 years or something like that. Gold's actually gone nowhere, closed down in 2021. I think that's important, though, on the Bitcoin, because really, as we've seen the proliferation of these other layer one protocols, Ethereum, Solana, a lot of the things that NFTs and DeFi are being built on, the bull case for Bitcoin has really become a store of value. And if it's a store of value, then that means that's a good hedge against inflation. And so the fact of the matter is, look what just happened. To your point, Guy, we just saw Bitcoin sell off 35% from all-time highs in November. So it seems very well correlated to risk assets like expensive equities. And it doesn't seem to be doing the job on the inflation front. Now, I know a lot of the Bitcoin maximalists are going to get all up in my grill. Maybe Jack Dorsey, who's listening, probably has a take on that. But to me, that's a problem for Bitcoin. I've said this on numerous occasions on the podcast. It feels like Bitcoin has a PR problem. It's viewed as a cryptocurrency. People don't use it as a currency. They really do use it as a store of value. Whereas Ethereum is really something that where if you are transacting on the Ethereum blockchain, whether it be in DeFi or NFTs, you are using ETH, the underlying token, as gas to transact. So that seems more like a currency. So to me, that's a battle that's going to be played out here in 2022. I suspect Bitcoin probably finds a bottom somewhere around 40,000. We've been looking at the charts on the podcast for the last couple months or so. That seemed like a bit of a level here. But again, it has proven, Guy, to your point, it is a feature, not a bug, the volatility. And for those of you who think that a trillion dollar risk asset like this has been around for more than 10 years, it just had a birthday like you did, Guy, it's not going away. So it really depends now what's built on top of it and what the adoption looks like in 2022. But I suspect a year from now, it's higher. I would love to get Gary Black on our podcast to talk about that and also his views on Tesla. We'll save that for another show. I do think we've talked about this before. There's a retail tail, so to speak, I think on crypto, right? You have you do have participation in there. And those people that own it, that don't truly believe in it, but own it because they think they should, when they're getting hit on their AMCs and the GameStops of the world, I think it has an impact on the portfolio. The other thing I would say is that we did turn the calendar. And I think there were a lot of people, I think people don't even know how to treat this stuff from a tax perspective clearly yet. But I think they were thinking to themselves, yeah, I'll hang on to it. I don't need to take a tax gain in 2021. And I think that may have fueled a little bit of this as well. And Dan, I, I will always bow to you on, you know, in terms of crypto and the experience. And I do agree with you that Ethereum, because it does have more applications, so to speak, at least proven out the Bitcoin is sort of value. Hey, please don't bow to me on this. And I mean this really seriously, Danny, you say this all the time, read your K's and Q's and do your own research. 
Listen, I know enough to be dangerous about it, meaning like we know that a lot of our listeners are like us. They're intellectually curious in this. They've seen how it's just kind of proliferated and they've seen the institutional adoption and all that sort of stuff. But again, the volatility is something that's really hard to get your arms around. That being said, how are we not used to this volatility? We see it in the stock market all the time. You just mentioned these meme stocks and these high valuation stocks. So to me, I find it really interesting. That's why I'm following it. That's why I'm investing in it. That's why we keep talking about it. That's why we started OK Computer with this amazing group of thought leaders and practitioners. So go check it out, people in the podcast stores. Nice. Yeah, we got Tom Lee. Tom Lee, after he sat down with us on markets and everything like that, he and I had a great sit down just on crypto, how he came to it. And I actually think just real quickly, and I'm going to kick it back to you, Danny. Tom Lee at Fundstrat, when he started looking at it as an asset class, he really legitimized it amongst a Wall Street set of people. I really mean that. And that was all the way back in 2017. So to me, I think Tom's the sort of guy, he's very sober about it. He's not one of these meme accounts on the Twitter, and he's got a lot of interesting things to say. So check that out. Well, listen, the the same way that the dot-com had frauds, you have some of these coins that are out there, right? But the same way that the dot-com also had rational exuberance going on, Anyone that had kids home from college in the last two weeks, you're, all you're hearing is that, oh, they have a friend that's getting rich on creating a coin of this and the other. We were due for a little bit of sell-off. And I do feel like every time we do see one of these sell-off, it gets into stronger hands potentially. So if we have this draw and it gets in, so maybe it shifts in. But you know, it's certainly here to stay, but I'm not going to try to predict where it's going to go. On October 17, 1977, Leonard Skinner released Street Survivors, one of the top five albums of all time. And you're saying to yourself, why are you mentioning that? Because Dan said, I know a little. Well, the bigger the city, the brighter the lights, the bigger the dog, the harder the bite. I don't know where you've been last night, but I'm thinking, Mama, you ain't doing right, Danny Moses. And that, of course, is the great I know a little. You know what's not been doing right? You sort of danced around it. AMC traded down to $20 this week. GameStop traded down to, I think, 121 levels we haven't seen in quite some time. My concern all along with both these names is there is a faction of people out there that think as long as they hold the line, everything's going to be fine. The stocks can't go lower. Well, they're learning the hard way right now, Danny, that that's not the case. I bring that up because retail's been a big portion of this market move. Are we starting to lose that leg of the market? I think we've done some damage. I think even with the fits and starts in the market in the fourth quarter and moves around. You do damage. We've talked about it. Stocks that even when AMC was trading from 25 up to 40, back to 32, 38, people are not making money in there. They're chasing. They're selling at the lows. They're buying at the highs. That's the mentality for a lot of people. And again, momentum comes out of these names. What is the buy point? There really isn't in those two names. Like, What is the level? There's a crypto aspect to AMC that people are trying to get this thing instilled in. It's not going to matter. GameStop. Oh, the guy came from Chewy. They're going to reinvent the company. No, they're not going to reinvent the company. Like it's not. So I wouldn't compare those two companies per se, but that mentality guy to your point is, hey, we're all in this together. I don't root for people to lose money. I want them to make money, but I want them to be eyes wide open on what they own. And there's an opportunity cost of owning a name like AMC right now and not looking at stocks that are getting cheaper and cheaper in the market. And I think we're going to have this continuous move from growth to value to quality as the year goes on, regardless of what the Fed does. And I think this is a wake-up call. And so people that have really gotten involved in the market the last two to three years, it's okay. Think of it as an opportunity cost. Sell your AMC at 23 and buy something else because over the long term, it's hard to see those stocks like that moving higher. One of the reasons people listen to the On The Tape podcast, they want to hear Dan Nathan. They want to hear my dopey song lyrics, I'm sure, from time to time. They want to get Danny Moses' picks. But they also want to get sort of these little, like, what do they call those things of gold, like these nuggets? And Danny Moses gave us a nugget many months ago, and he talked about this Ernest Garcia, and I thought he was a golf player. But turns out, once again, Danny Moses ahead of the story in Carvana. So just give us a little update, Danny Moses, on the Carvana situation. Nothing's really changed in the last couple weeks in the name. The stocks went from 195 to 240, back to 200 around where it is right now. I do think we're starting to see data coming out in the used car market that is not as favorable. So if you lose that kind of tailwind, that certainly is going to be a negative. There's no justification for the stock trades because it doesn't trade on earnings anyway. But again, with the rates moving up here, cost of financing moves a little bit higher. 
I think the tailwinds are gone for the company. And if there is something else that's untoward inside the company, I'm not saying there's a DOJ investigation or anything like that or an SEC investigation, but something like that on a name like that, the trades here, there's really no bottom for it. And again, I'm not saying that there is one. So nothing's really changed. I think just the calendar. And so we'll see where this thing plays, but I'm still short the name here. It's fascinating. People always want to know, like, when can you see capitulation? When do you think it's the all clear sign? So for me, it's going to come in the form of the VIX. And one thing, Dan, I take some solace in the fact that the VIX has really gone nowhere. I mean, yeah, it traded north of 20, 19 handle now. But on some of these other sell-offs we've seen, we've seen the VIX go from a 17 handle to a 30 handle literally in one day. We're not seeing that now. So maybe that's a sign that things aren't as bad as some people think. One thing that I'm going to be looking for, and we've talked about again, there's been subsectors within technology that have absolutely crashed. The sort of devastation in some household names that you would only expect to see in a broad market, like in a bear market, some protracted sort of thing. And it's happened despite the fact that we literally had new highs in the S&P 500 early in the week. So the thing that I would look to see for stabilization would be a stock like Microsoft that's down 6% already on the year. If it got down in a real quick manner, down 10, 15% or something like that. Again, not too different than what we saw in Q1 of 2021. I want to see these generals get shot, get hit hard, have ultimate panic a day where they're all down 5%. Guys, the NASDAQ was down 3% yesterday. This is on Wednesday. The S&P was down 2%. That was a pretty big day. We just need to see a string of them. And I'll just tell you, Thursday right now into the close, this is not a particularly impressive bounce after the action that we saw yesterday. The S&P is maybe up 10 bips and the NASDAQ is up about the same. I don't know. I'm pretty unimpressed. I think there's another leg lower in these generals. Fast forward a little bit to kind of March and April. Let's not forget, when the pandemic broke out in March 2020, April 2020, all the economic numbers and earnings and stuff all started to get hit. We anniversary that stuff last year and growth exploded. We're now anniversarying the explosive growth going forward. So I think we all just need to take into account that numbers aren't going to be jumping off the screen on an earnings, on a revenue comparison basis, on an economic numbers basis after we get through the first quarter. That's my first thing. What's going to calm this market, I think, is Powell talking in front of the Senate next week because his nomination, like I said, is going to turn into what are you doing? So I think that's part of what people are going to be looking for. Then we're going to get into the earnings. Once we get past the banks, which aren't really, quote, inflation impacted companies per se, they do benefit on the margin from higher rates, that we're going to start to see about all these consumer good companies and industrials are going to start reporting. We're going to get a much better read for how inflation is actually impacting them at the cost level, whether they're passing them on. This is the most important quarter to me, this fourth quarter getting reported with the outlook going forward that we have had in this call it bullish cycle in a long time. And that's a statement of the obvious since the Fed is obviously going to be, quote, very active here or inactive, which is negative to a degree. So I'm kind of excited to see what happens because we all know that I like volatility and I like to be able to take advantage of Dan's point of stocks that sell off a lot of things that you like and sell into strength of things that I don't. So should be a really interesting, fun-filled quarter. So, Have your buyers list ready there, folks. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of people that have now found us because they've heard through friends that Danny Moses is picking games at an 89% clip. So a lot of you folks might have fast-forwarded this entire thing to get to this point now. So I'm going to give you a second to get your pad and paper out. Ready? Okay, here we go. This is now week 18 in the league where they play for pay. As I mentioned, Danny Moses has an 89% winning. It's just, it's stupid. So Danny, on this final week of the NFL, what do you have for us, please? Let me just clean up last week a little bit because I gave two NFL picks, then I gave a teaser. I don't think anyone was able to get the teaser in because at that point, the line was Colts minus six and a half and Packers minus six and a half. And I was teasing them each down to minus a half. Teasers suck anyway. It reminds me how much they suck. But whatever, those lines closed at nine and a half for the Colts and then 13 for the Packers when they found out that Cousins was out. So I'm happy to take that as a loss, but it's not an NFL pick loss. But I do acknowledge that I did not get that right. So I look through who's motivated this week, who's not, what playoff spots are available. There's not a lot of, quote, meaningful games out there. There are some, but they're just mismatches, like Colts going into Jacksonville. They're obviously going to take care of business there. Tennessee going into Houston more than likely take care of business. So I'm looking at two games that have some type of meaning here. One of them is the Raiders at home, still inspired by John Madden, I believe, against the L.A. Chargers. And, Guy, you and I spoke at the beginning of the season. We liked the Chargers. We liked Herbert. They've been an underperformer on the margin. 
I think they're going to take care of the Raiders in this game. They're laying three in Las Vegas. I think Vegas has been a pretender for a long time here, and I think they lose this game, and I think we'll see the Chargers in the playoffs. So, Dan, that line's going between two and a half and three, but I'm going to make it more interesting for you, okay? The money line, because I'm nervous about laying the three. A couple times this season, I did pick money lines as opposed to spread, because it's not a crazy number. So the line is minus 140, 150, if you just take the Chargers outright to win. What does that mean? Bet $140 to win 100. The Chargers just have to win. Okay, so I will give you plus 140 on the Raiders on any denomination that you want. This is really interesting, Danny. You're afraid of taking minus three, the Chargers on the road in LV? I mean, I don't understand this. You're 24 and three. Is this pick? It's just a money line pick. Or are you going to pick the line? I'm making this one. I'm, I've done this before this season. You were probably on the losing end of those two. <laughs> Do you want the Raiders plus 140? No, I actually want the Raiders getting three at home. That's what I want. Okay. So for the people out there, my pick is the Chargers laying, let's say, 140, 150 on the money line. Okay. For you, Dan, I'll take the Chargers minus three. You can have the Raiders plus three. How much do you want on it? All right. I'll take a thousand there. Okay. You're done there. The second game that I'm looking at is the Rams at home against the 49ers. 49ers have been a gutty team. They're actually playing fairly well right now. The Rams shouldn't have beaten the Ravens. They've been inconsistent all year. It's meaningful only at the standpoint if Arizona loses their game to the Seahawks. And they're both playing at 4 o'clock, so they're playing simultaneously. So the Arizona is 11-5 and five in their division, and the Rams are 12-4. and four. However, if they both end up at 12-5, and five, Arizona gets the nod. So anyway, I like the 49ers here to win. They need to basically win this game, potentially, to make sure that they're in the playoffs. They're getting 4.5 in L.A. I like the Niners plus 4.5. Dan, what do you want to do? I'm going to take the Rams minus 4.5 for 1,000. Okay, a thousand. So we got the two picks, guy. I love what you guys did there. I'm inspired by you both taking stands. This is what it's all about. This is the final week. We will continue this without question as the playoffs begin. But this has been an epic year. If I were you, Danny Moses, and I'm not, and the reason why I will never be you because I don't have the cojones that you do, but you should just drop the mic after this week, regardless of outcome. But knowing you the way I do, which is a great lyric of a song, you're going to continue this not only into the playoffs, but into next year's NFL season. So my admiration for you continues to go higher. Dan, my admiration for you has always been high, and the fact that you continue to take this each and every week speaks to the stones that you have. So, and this final week of the NFL, what better guest to have than the great Tom Lee, who played some college football in his day. A lot of people don't know that, but when we come back, the great Tom Lee of Funstrat. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Tom Lee is Managing Partner and Head of Research at Fundstrat Global Advisors. He's one of the most widely followed strategists on Wall Street with more than two decades in the business. We're lucky to call him a friend. Tom, welcome back to On The Tape. Tom Lee, thanks for joining us on The Tape. You are one of the guests that we couldn't wait to have last year in our first year. I will say this, that Guy, Danny, and I, one of the first things that we read every morning is the work that you guys do on FS Insight, and obviously we have the benefit of participating in some of the events that you do for institutional clients at Fundstrat, so we thank you for being here. We understand what demand that you are in this time of year, because it's outlook season, isn't it, Tom? It is. As soon as January 1 starts, everybody resets their ledgers and their performance, and they're all looking for what are the big ideas for the next 365 days. 
It's amazing, right? When we've all been on Wall Street for a long time and there's something about that artificial date on the calendar that turns the page, so to speak, and then everybody wants to know what starts at zero and what's going to get me the most alpha. Well, let's talk about this. You were on Fast Money with Guy and me the other night and you were quoting Tireless Ken. We love quoting Tireless Ken. So he's your quant. And so let's just do this. Let's start this conversation like this. You guys have really closely tracked a lot of data as it relates to COVID. And you've made a lot of assumptions, qualitative assumptions about the quantitative data that you've been crunching about this virus, about all these variants. And you've been applying them to all the work that you're doing in the stock market or in other risk markets. Where are we right now? We just had this Omicron. What is the data telling you the stock market is headed in the near term? One of the reasons why virus, I guess, lends itself to the work Ken does is it is kind of maths, right? There's a reproduction and then there's the number of hosts that can get infected. So you can see how the waves play through and that's what Ken's been doing. And so his forecast from late December was that Omicron would peak an aggregate in the U.S. on January 9th. But the first states to watch would be New Jersey, Connecticut, New York. So basically where Omicron first landed. It's important because one, as you guys remember, like in late November when it was first reported and then borders were closed, financial markets panicked about Omicron. I mean, we had a huge drawdown. S&P, I think it was 6%, almost peaked a trough. And it was important to know the end date because the stock market has bottomed, especially if you look at the last three waves, well ahead of the peak in cases. In fact, it actually peaks around the peak in incremental hospitalization rates. So if Omicron's not as deadly, which we don't know, but it does look like it's becoming that, then whatever bottom we formed in December was the bottom. When you say the bottom, like the bottom, like we're not going below that because that in the S&P 500, like you said, we had not had a 10% peak to trough decline all year, which made it like one in five years in 50 or something like that. So I know that you've called for a bit of volatility early this year. I mean, where do you think the S&P 500 goes X variant? In December, the low was around 4,400 for the S&P. Then we've been rallying since. I wouldn't be surprised if we get to 5,000 this month, maybe early February. That could be the high for the first half. And because of the risks of supply chain and the Fed and everything that you guys flag, I think we probably go back to 4,400. So I think it's actually going to be viewed as a retest with a six-month difference. And of course, as you know, that's a pretty important double bottom if it happens. So Tom, I'm going to sound like Guy Adami here, but the letter that follows O in the alphabet that Omicron represents is P, the PAL variant is the next big wave coming through the market. So I know you just said we could see 4,400. That's some painful move right there. That would be close. I don't have it in front of me, but 8 to 10% type of correction, I believe. Dan, you can check my math on that. And that won't feel very good. So how do you balance that? Or what do you tell your clients? To not overtrade the market here? Because those situations, people find themselves selling at the lows and buying back at the highs. They just stay patient with current themes that you like in the market. How would you guide them through that? Yeah, that's tough because one... I'm using this as a stylized view, like the idea that we rally, then we pull back, right? If we rally to 52 and then we only pull back to 47, it's still going to feel ugly. But at the end of the day, you had to stay invested in that whole time frame. So my advice to most people is you have to plan as if there is going to be a lot of volatility and own stuff that you can stomach owning through that volatility. And then have some capital available to buy stuff that you think will go on sale. Last year, there were four pullbacks of 4 to 5%. Each time, if we think back to how investors felt, everybody thought the sky was falling and was in despair. So, I mean, if 4% drawdowns caused despair, imagine what a 7, 8, 10, 11, 12. People are going to be screaming murder. No question about it. And it's unfortunate that Ken's name is Ken. If his name was Ian, we could have gone with like indefatigable Ian or something cool like that. That's just the way my mind works, Tom. But you know, we totally dig your work. I want to talk about energy because that was a huge theme of yours. And by the way, you were spot on with it, but the summer proved to be a little challenging. And then I think the Omicron variant coupled with the SPR release sort of took some of the wind out of the sails. But I got to tell you something, the sails have wind back in them. What are you thinking about energy in the first half of this year? Energy, I don't think, can survive a drawdown, so it's going to fall if everything else is falling. 
I'm not saying it's guaranteed that we have a 10% pullback. I just think energy, people have to look at it through like a five-year window because we know there's a shortage of oil production versus supply. And then we know energy stocks are cheap to oil right now. And we know energy companies faced extinction in 2020. So now they become capital discipline because they're not getting bailed out like they were in 2016. So they're chastened. So they're managing capital better. And then we know most people don't own energy because every time energy's had a pullback, and Guy, you mentioned the two, right? There was a pretty big one from February through the summer and the second one in November. Most of our clients are like, well, I'm so glad I don't own energy. It's so small and I'm glad I don't own. So most people think energy's small enough to ignore, but last year was the best performing sector. And I think year to date, it's already up double digits and it's under-owned. So I think if it's under-owned and they're managing capital better and oil prices have a structural support, which means energy stocks are kind of garpy, not value. Geopolitical risk out there. I know we have it every year. It's always with us, but it feels a little bit more intense going into this year. And I'm wondering how much you factor that into your forecasts. And then specifically, it seems like that's a tailwind for energy prices since a lot of the geopolitical risk is going to be surrounding oil. War is always good for oil prices. I think something like 70% of all oil production is held by countries that are considered unstable nations. So oil already is being produced by countries that are subject to very easy kinds of disruptions. I'm just going to say oil, when the SPR was announced, it was 78.50 and it fell to 60. And then it's back to where it was when the SPR was announced. And so I think if someone thinks what the next $20 is for oil prices this year, I will say it's $20 plus upwards, not $20 downwards. When you think about geopolitical, to Danny's point, over the last 10 years, there really haven't been too many events. We're seeing some stuff in natural gas as it relates to what's going on with the Ukraine. So Europe is being affected by that. But there haven't been too many instances where there's been lasting impact on the energy market. And so I don't know why this would be different this time around here. I go back to 2013-14 when the Fed was in the midst of tapering their quantitative easing and we know that they were contemplating coming off a of ZERP, the zero interest rate bound. And what happened? We saw the dollar rally, we saw rates rally, and we saw crude oil come in meaningfully. And at that point, there was tremendous demand for that, right? And so what's different this time around as we're faced with some of the similar sort of sentiments about what the Fed is embarking? Because crude oil from its highs in 2014 to its lows in 16 sold off 65%. Well, the reason it should be kind of eye-popping a little bit now is fuel consumption for oil is basically back to peak and there's no business travel. What's going to happen when people actually start flying on planes? And now people fly on private jet, which of course is a lot more energy intensive. We have to rebuild inventory. If you look at inventory retailer industry, we're at what you consider to be recession levels because it's actually been inventory has been drawn down. So companies in the next year have to rebuild inventory, which means more deliveries, more ports, more flights. So consumption is going to be super normal because the part of inventory building that happens is movement of objects. You know, what's interesting for me, Tom, is the OIH is not backing up this commodity move in any way. And my sense is what's going on. I'm curious as to your thoughts. I think it's sort of a wait and see this time in the OIH. People are saying, all right, you got to prove it to me in terms of the commodity. And is there a certain price in crude, in your opinion, that it needs to get to for a lot of these stocks to sort of be unlocked or unleashed to the upside? I'm going to agree with you completely. Energy stocks are skeptical of oil prices, but they can be skeptical because oil prices are about to tank or because no one's betting on oil because that's why no one's buying energy stocks. Nobody I know is really long energy. So I, I think that the reason energy stocks haven't participated is no one's really expressing a view. So I don't know if there's a level of oil price or is there a capitulation? Here's an example. Again, when it comes to future stuff, I'm just giving you a scenario. So like, I don't know if it's correct, but I think if the White House says we got to boost production and then they shake hands with some oil companies and energy companies and service companies say, let's expand drilling and let's get some stuff done. I think the energy stocks go higher, even though it means future supply. It's because it shows policymakers are embracing that you got to support legacy energy, even if you're trying to transition to renewables. 
The fact that you backed me up and agree with me, it's my mic drop moment. I could hear it in your voice. Like you hesitated. You're like, holy shit. I actually agree with something that Guy Adami just said. Like, I'm freaking done with this now. I don't need to say another thing because you agree with me. I love it. Anyway, back to you. Switch topics now. Wait, wait, Guy. Think about how many times Tom Lee has been on with us on Fast Money and you come into one of these conversations. You've been mic quiet listening to us. How often are you rolling your eyes? This is us being a little self-conscious about Yeah, be honest. Don't bullshit us. Be honest. No, I don't think so. I have been doing research since 1993. So almost 30 years. And to me, I never expect the market to have any agreement. I've never seen in my 30 years, people really agree on anything, like whether it's Facebook when it first went public or Google or the future policy. So I think anybody who follows markets should always expect that there's no consensus. So I don't expect when we have work and we have a view, we don't really expect people to agree because I've never really seen agreement in markets. Yeah, but from all of your work right now, you guys have this tremendous lens into retail investors with FS Insight. You obviously speak to dozens, if not hundreds of institutional accounts with Fundstrat. What is the biggest battleground situation in markets right now? I think there is sheer terror about inflation. For the last 30 years, inflation's undershot. And rates have been falling. So a generation of bond managers made money hodling bonds. And equity investors benefited from PE expansion. And as you know, the the central banks had to basically lean dovish anyways throughout all that. So now that there is less certainty of downside readings and inflation, just the change in that is terrifying people. Because I think people are fearful the market will overreact. They're fearful the Fed's behind the curve. They just don't know how the public's going to react to inflation. I think there's terror on inflation. If you had to choose between deflation and inflation and say, what's a better environment for stocks? We know reflation is better. So what the market wants to eventually get assurance on is that there's reflation, not inflation. Tom, I'm going to have a guy moment here. I would never call you bearish because I know it's not necessarily something you want to be categorized in, but I'm sensing for the first time in a long time, and you and I worked together in late 90s, early 2000, and saw that bubble together, that you're sensing a lot of danger ahead. And one thing I wanted to ask you was, I know Ken ran all these numbers. He does great work for you. I know you just put out a report that showed that following the market up 27%, how does the market perform? How does the market perform in an election cycle when the House and the Senate and the Oval Office are controlled by the same party, et cetera? Why didn't you run, or maybe you haven't, I haven't seen it, in a Fed rate hike cycle, how the stock market tends to perform? Because to your point, we saw many one in 2015, 16. That's really all this generation of investors have seen. And so maybe give us a little taste of what that might look like, because this is something with the Fed pulling money out of the market to a degree or putting less money in what we're in store for, just to expound on that point you just made. The Fed is still the most powerful entity in the world. The Fed, in theory, creates business cycles too, because if they tighten sufficiently, they can choke off growth and we have a recession. So the US Federal Reserve can actually create global economic cycles. No other central bank in the world can do it. So the Fed was unconditionally dovish since the start of the pandemic, does whatever it takes. It was like echoes of Draghi. And in 2022, that's off because it's not a hawkish Fed. But it's like the Fed saying, you're not dying, so we don't have to mortgage the entire future of society. So it's a big change. I don't even think you can find a precedent. That's why I do think it's treacherous. But it could also be if the Fed is less hawkish than the market is, the stock market will actually be fine. So part of what the next six months is about is the market's assessment if the Fed is ahead or behind. That's a great point. And so, you know, my view on your work, Tom, it's incredible. And David Tepper, a lot of people say this, but I think David Tepper does it the best. He simplifies this to the point where he'll come on and say, don't fight the Fed. The Fed's providing liquidity, the market's going to go up. And that's frustrating for a lot of people. It frustrates the shit out of me, but that's a different conversation. But if it's true not to fight the Fed mantra when they're adding liquidity, and obviously that works to the upside, wouldn't it be equally true not to fight them when they're doing a complete 180? Is that too simplistic or is there some truth to that? 100% agreement. 
I think that's why the first half of this year is going to be tough because, look, if the Fed's reversing, there are ripple effects. It could be a policy error. If inflation's transitory, then the Fed's making a mistake. I wouldn't say that the first half of this year is a risk-on environment because there's a lot of things that could go wrong. Let's look at the stock market then again. So what's going on right here, we talked about the fact that literally the greatest peak to trough decline in 2021 was 6% in the S&P 500. I think the NASDAQ sold off a bit more than that early in the year in Q1 in 2021. When it did that, it did it because rates were going higher. And so a lot of investors were repricing growth stocks largely in technology and even the biggest ones. When the S&P sold off 5.5% from its highs in February to its lows in March, the NASDAQ sold off maybe 10, 11, 12%. Apple, the largest equity in the market, sold off nearly 20%. So right now we're seeing a scenario where the S&P 500 is not meaningfully off of its all-time highs, but there are dozens and dozens of stocks in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ that are down 20, 30, 40, some with massive market caps. When you think about, like, let's just use a block, Square, this massive secular story that has had this huge run over the last few years. Their products and services of massive, the adoption, the acceleration, all that, it's down 30%. It was down 10% in just one day the other day. What do you make of that? Is it all about rates? Is it how investors are pricing growth right now? Because we've also seen this pile on in value in banks. Obviously, energy is another one, and then some industrials just this week alone. You know, for the last 12 years, I think it's always felt like a narrow market. I don't really think there's been a year where everyone said everything's working. Because in some years, it's just FANG. Some years, it's certain sectors. So I'm just used to the idea that there's a lot of stuff that's weak and high off their peak. In Bloomberg, there's this thing called trad pause, which is the percentage of stocks above the 200-day. And I haven't looked at it, but I would say for the last 13 years, I bet you if you look at the average, it's below previous 12-year period. In other words, very few stocks are actually on a rising trend in the last 12 years. But it doesn't mean that that's what the next 12 years looks like, right? In the next 12 years, we could actually have more participation, or we could just have a creation of a new series of mega caps. Our team did a, for one of our Japanese clients, every 10 years, how much of the return comes from newly created stocks in the S&P versus legacy. And I'm going to get this stat wrong, but I think it's something like 60 or 70% of the return is from companies added to the S&P. Well, Tesla makes that case for you in the last year. Think about when Tesla went into the S&P 500. I mean, that's really interesting when you think about We have had NVIDIA is nearly a trillion dollar market cap. Facebook is nearly a trillion dollar market cap. And we were obsessed a few years ago with the notion that Apple might be one and then Google and Microsoft not far behind it. And they're all north of 2%. But I guess the point that I would make is that the narrowing that you talk about, we have four or five names that are $10 trillion in market cap that are equal to the entire market cap, let's say, of China's market. Apple is nearly the market cap of the Russell 2000 small caps, the entire index of small cap stocks. And so when I look around and I look at all this innovation that is supposedly going to draw us into this next wave of the information age, I see stocks like Twitter and Snap and Pinterest. They closed on their 52-week lows down 30, 40, 50% from their all-time highs. I see SaaS names that just think about Adobe. These are your new mega caps. This was a $250 billion market cap company, Salesforce.com. These stocks were down 10 percent a day this week, down 30 some percent just in the last few months or so. So something's going on here. And the fact that the major indices are just basically very near all-time highs, but dozens and dozens of names that we use their products and services every day have been cut in half in the last year or down 30 percent from recent highs. Doesn't that trouble you just a little bit? I'm not trying to be glib, but not really. Keep in mind, like when people complain about market structure in the U.S., They have to start looking at other countries. Take Korea. I think Samsung is like 30% of the Cosby. And we've done this. If you took the largest stock and percentage of market cap outside the US, it's often 15%. So basically, that would mean like Apple would have to be $5 trillion company. So Apple has to double again, actually, to be something like the way the rest of the world looks. So it just means in the US, we actually have a lot more good companies. The Herfindahl Index. Guy, you got that one, the Herfindahl? I'm a big believer H-H-I. in the Herfindahl Index. Actually, it's on top of my uh, Google playlist. Sorry. You explain it to us and we're going to Google it. So it's called the 
Herschel-Herfindahl index originally was a measure of industry concentration, like a professor posited, which is, it's the number of participants, like your position times your market share. And so a high Herfindahl index means it's a concentrated industry. I actually don't remember the math. There's like a certain cutoff. And the Department of Justice used to do this too for allowing mergers. So it's HHI. And for many years, the USBEA actually calculated the Herfindahl index for every industry. And then they stopped doing it in 2007. So before you could actually calculate industry concentration of manufacturing, of socks, hair salons, dentist offices, everything. But when we did look at that, the HHI of every industry in America has gone up. America has gotten more concentrated. But if you concentrate share, as long as you don't have malevolent characters, you create better industry structure. So I think that the PE should be higher because you have better industry structure. You take any sector and say it went from 100 players to seven, but now their margins tripled. And then what if someone's like, oh, it's a bubble, the PE should be going down. Actually, you look at the history, any industry that does it, the multiples go up because everyone's earning in excess of their cost of capital. Just a quick break in because this is what I like to do. By the way, these cats were probably a lot of fun at frickin' parties. But the herfindahl Hirschman Index, HHI, is an approach that is commonly used to measure market concentration. It is calculated by squaring the market share of each organization that is competing within a given market and then adding the resulting numbers together. The fact that these two cats were smoking weed and put this together, I mean, Danny Moses should have been in that room. Anyway, back to you. I bet you Danny would have been doing a version of that when he was looking at the housing market. I was actually going to ask you a question because you made a comment before about since 2008, there's been a lot of fits and starts in the market, but it really hasn't mattered. And it really hasn't mattered because of quantitative easing and the thought the Fed has your back. And I know you don't give out single stock things specifically because it doesn't pay to try to do that. You go sector by sector, which is what you should be doing. But this feels like more and more a stock picker's market on the long and the short side. And if the baby goes out with the bathwater, and I know Guy's going to say, where does that come from? I don't know where it comes from, Guy. I don't, baby out with bathwater, I don't know. But where does that come from, Danny? I have no idea. But when it does, it does seem like, to your point, especially with a volatile first quarter, at least, or first half you're looking for, have these buy points on these stocks, but doing bottom-up work here. And I know you were a sector-specific analyst for years, so you can appreciate that. Do you think it's a lost art? And how much in vogue is that going to come back here in 2022, you think? Stock picking definitely has lost its shine. Active managers that outperformed used alternative data and they used quant methods and they employed mechanical systems to trade. So the idea of like, hey, here's a great company. It's going to turn around. Management's doing the right things. And the next 18 months, it's a home run. That is the domain of the retail investor in a way because that's retail investors are going to make that decision. Of course, a lot of institutional investors do. But how many 25-year-olds out of Wharton getting hired by a hedge fund are in that process? It's not as much these days because people have to use factor, they have beta baskets. So you're right. It's a lost art. I mean, there's a lot of people who do it, but they're not doing it the way with Danny Iward Oppenheimer. That's how everyone lived and breathed, right? Remember like Steve Eisman's stock? These are long-term stories. Before Dan gets in, I just want to say, if in fact that is true, that stock picking has lost its shine, Tom Lee. I would uh, ask Scatman Crothers to come in and possibly help us. I know that's probably over the head of 90% of our audience, but as you've come to learn, I don't give a shit. No, you do not. Here's one on that point, I think, on stock picking. And Gavin Baker, who you know from Atreides, who's just one of the best tech stock pickers out there, he tweeted this earlier today. He said, a few high-quality growth companies are now below their 2018 trough multiples when the 10-year was 3% versus 1.68 today with arguably stronger fundamentals. Similar growth, better gross margins, that sort of thing. And he's like, yes, we're still trading at 100% premiums 2018. The point here, I guess, is that we are seeing meaningfully corrections in certain areas. So it is becoming that much more important to pick stocks because there's going to be opportunities sector to sector. And I yeah. think that's part of your point. Sure. And maybe it's just I should do a flyover comment. Like, let's say we're just flying over the market. It's not 2011 anymore. There aren't going to be that many 10 baggers in the next 10 years. We're 2022 now. 
finding those 10 baggers, that's the real trick for active managers. All right, well, listen, before we let you get out of here, you and I are going to have a conversation on crypto. We're going to put that on OK Computer. That is our new podcast time. You have to follow it in the podcast stores, and I can't wait to do that. But we haven't touched crypto. And the thing about crypto is really interesting for me is that you were such an early adopter as it relates to Wall Street. I think when you made it a tentpole of Fundstrat and FS Insight, and I don't think there's any major investment house or boutique that has done that in the same way. Where does crypto fit in this in 2022? When you think about this tightening cycle, you think about these worries about inflation, you said that's the big battle. What's going on with crypto? Because I would also say in your tracker on FS Insight, Bitcoin dominance is at a multi-year low, just below 40%. So just give us your quick take on crypto and how our listeners should be thinking about it for 2022. The simple benchmarks, is crypto getting more useful? It definitely is because there's more payment rails, connectivity between traditional finance into crypto. The thesis is stronger. As you know, the thesis for crypto at the core is really, it's one, it's a generational bet. More Obviously, more people are using crypto and buying it, but it's only like 220 million people in the world. There's like 7 billion people. So there's a lot more growth. But it's also the proven intersection of financial and technology. Tech companies go to war with banking. It's going to come out as crypto babies. And the third is people are using crypto. I mean, look, everyone's doing NFTs. Nike's buying real estate in like the meta. It's only the earliest stages still in my in my opinion. This is definitely my opinion because I don't know the future. But to me, crypto is more like 2002 internet. We already had a dot-com bust in crypto, 2018, 2019. And so this is the second wave of that revival. Well, since Scatman Crothers passed away in 1986, it's going to be difficult to get him to come in and pick stocks. But maybe we can get Danny Lloyd, who, by the way, played Danny Torrance. He's now a teacher somewhere in the Midwest. Maybe he can do a good job. Shelley Duvall scared the shit out of me. Forget about The Shining, just in general. But that's a completely different podcast for another time. Tom Lee, love it when you come on. Tell indefatigable Ian or tireless Ted or Ken, we say hi. Hope to have you back real soon. Thanks, guys. Happy 2022. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.